Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Close Up. It's a podcast about some of the wonderful films we're showing in Metro Cinema. Today we're going to be uh, working our way through the month of April. Also, before we get into it, I'd like to mention that the music you'll be hearing throughout the show is courtesy of some very generous local artists, including Mark Templeton, Matthew Belton of Mangled Tapes, The Pigeon Breeders, Maggie Hardy, and possibly even myself, as well as some wonderful tracks from Mr. Leonard J. Paul, who has very kindly allowed us to use some of his score to the film Beep, which is a documentary about the history of video game sound. And the soundtrack is also at least one of the first feature-length procedural music film scores in history. Procedural or generative music is uh, a term popularized by Brian Eno to describe music that is ever-changing in its permutation and is generated using a system designed or initiated by a given uh, individual composer or artist. So someone like Steve Reich or Delia Derbyshire uh, or Terry Riley have all experimented with uh, the likes, uh, with that method of composition. In fact, I went to a lecture years ago by Brian Eno uh, about his composition 77 Million Paintings, which is a, a program that will supposedly change 77 million times and give you 77 million different uh, interpretations of an idea. I heart good? him. <laughs> I heart him too. Yes, discrete music is a good example of, uh, of Brian, you know, uh, putting that theory into action. I'm also, I, I also heart him a lot. I think quadruple heart him. Really? <laughs> I think I heart him one more than you heart him. Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I must uh, direct you to the uh, to dot com forward slash releases where you'll find the original score for Beep available to purchase and download and I thoroughly recommend you do because it's fantastic. Also though, not related to that, had anyone seen the film Indie Game? Or Indie Game? No. No? no? In the film it talks about this uh, game called Fez which is uh, made by a guy from Montreal called Paul Fish and the music is all composed by an artist called Disasterpiece who did the soundtrack to It Follows. Interesting. That was a useless <laughs> segue. Thanks for the anecdote. <laughs> um, anyway, before I forget, uh, so my name is Owen Armstrong. I'm the projectionist at Metro Cinema. I also host the Metro Cinema uh, movie trivia at the Tavern on White on the last Sunday of every month. And uh, to my left. Hi, I'm Emily Noel Ritchie. I'm a filmmaker and colorist. And I'm Heather. I am the chair of the programming committee at Metro. Heather Noel. Oh, I'm a... Just Heather. Oh, no, okay. <laughs> Kaylin Casera. I'm the uh, best and best-known popcorn <laughs> server at the Metro Cinema. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Will. Uh, I would like to challenge <laughs> Kaylin to... Uh, <laughs> I also scoop popcorn. Yeah. A popcorn off? I think we should definitely at one, one like one of these days. It gets talked about enough that like it has to happen. Yeah, I think so. As per usual, we're just going to sort of dive in. If anyone mentions uh, that they are talking about stuff again, it's because we tried this last week, and I accidentally lost a recording somehow. So we just we're just in here again, having the same conversation. But we're going to start off. Talking I've changed about my opinions on everything. I have <laughs> drastically just to surprise you. That's that's uh, <laughs> maverick of you. <laughs> I'm not the same person I was last week. In None football, of us are, man. <laughs> None of us are. A lot's happened. Police Story and Police Story 2. We're showing it back to back because uh, we're commemorating its uh, Criterion release. Is that correct? Yeah, that is that correct. correct. Now, how many of you have actually seen original Jackie Chan in the big screen before? I definitely have not. You definitely have not. Never. Yeah, I said it last week. I'll say it again this (laughs) week. (laughs) Nice. I like that. This is the movie to see at Metro this month. Yes. Because it's... 
a hell of a lot of fun and the type of movie that you really need to see in a theater, I think. Having not seen it in a theater, I'm really excited to. Yeah. I haven't seen Police Story 2 yet, but I... I've not seen Police Story 2. From what I uh, gather, it's... Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm afraid I'm going to say something that you said last week. No, I'm going <laughs> to <laughs> pretend that it was my... Oh, you no. know what, Kaylin? No, you uh, take this. That, uh, the way I believe the way I described Police Story 2 last week is it's Police Story 1 except with the bomb strapped to Jackie Chan's chest. Yes. Someone also described it as Buster Keaton meets Jackie Chan. That was me. That, okay. that, <laughs> was, that was Maggie Hardy by way of Owen. That's right. Weird. <laughs> This is like a, uh, a meta-plagiarism event. <laughs> I like it. That is, uh, that's Friday the 12th. But, the, so the first, the first uh, Jackie Chan film I saw was Rumble in the Bronx, mm. which is uh, my first kind of like exposure to the madness of Jackie Chan. If you're not, um, you know, seen films like Drunken Master or Snake and Eagle Shadow, most people are familiar with, I think, Rush Hour, which is probably where most people have seen him on the on the big screen, but that really uh, kind of fails to capture the insanity of a film like Police Story, which is just I, then that I mean, there's there's a whole list of the number of bones that he broke making that film. There was they were used a thing called sugar glass to um, uh, somebody smashes through glass for certain stunts, and they they made it extra thick to make it extra real so of course it just still hurt everybody really badly uh, and there's a lot of that that goes on the stunts are absolutely fantastic it is the, it is quite a spectacle so I kind of I agree with Heather yeah I think that it was probably the first Jackie Chan movie that I've seen and I am a huge Buster Keaton fan and I can definitely see the connection there and I think that what makes it so exciting is that you, is what is actually happening on screen as a opposed to the editing or the sound design that is uh, typically used in contemporary American action films to make you think that something exciting is happening, yes. but really there's not a whole lot happening at all. Police Story is way more fun. I don't yes. remember, I mean, there's also always this fear revisiting something that's that old that there's going to be something really offensive in it. Yeah. I, there may be. I don't remember, so I don't want to endorse it too strongly, but... I have the same... Uh, it's awesome. So yes, that's uh, on uh, Friday the 12th. Back to back. Is that a double bill? Is that yes, how we're correct. kind of like, you know, programming that? And I believe they're new transfers, so yeah, um, so because it has just been released on uh, on Criterion, so mm -hmm. that's uh, that's pretty awesome. And we're also showing from April fifth until the eleventh. Ash is the purest white, which is directed by uh, Jia Jiankei. It also directed Still Life, Unknown Pleasure, and A Touch of Sin. And it, uh, I think most of those, or all of those at least, have been. Uh, at the, uh, the Cannes Film Festival at some point or another starting I think with uh, Still Life in 2012 yeah maybe? I have seen Still Life yeah mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. I, it seems that um, from what I understand about this movie it's a, it's a bit more of a genre piece so Still Life has this very realist uh, take on people who are being relocated because of the Three Gorges project Mm -hmm. um, it's a really beautifully shot film. So this one, yeah, this one is a, a more conventional uh, kind of, uh, just in terms of story, I think it's kind of like a gangster film. Okay. But that said, it's centered on a woman's perspective, which I guess is a bit um, less common in that genre. Yeah, so I guess to give it a little bit of context, because I am not familiar with the Gio Janke very, uh, very much, but he is part of the post-1990 uh, era, <coughs> the so-called sixth generation, which is characterized by a return uh, of amateur filmmaking as a response to state censorship policies following the Tiananmen Square demonstration. A film like 2004's House of the Flying Daggers would be considered as part of the fifth generation. Uh, so something like Still Life 
which won the Golden Lion uh, as well at the Venice Film Festival in 2006, marks a very clear difference in attitude and style, uh, closer to uh, Italian neorealism or cinema verite, as you said, uh, and also reflecting the filmmakers' concerns with social tension, marginalisation, disenfranchisement, and broadly speaking, to those uh, less represented fringes of society. The lady sat opposite me right now is Hitomi Suzuki to talk about the next film in her series. That's Any right. excuse for food is the series. So you know Ramnik did a Boom Bap series? Yes. In the last film he showed Crush Groove? Yes. There's a song called All You Can Eat. So now I keep thinking that your series is called All You Can Eat. Well, actually speaking of All You Can Eat, we might as well talk a little bit about the cereal party. The cereal party is one of our quarterly... Um, offerings that we give which is always a lot of fun and it's always on a Saturday morning pay one price and have all the cereal you want we even are gluten friendly and environmentally friendly and we'll give you all kinds of different milk if you can't when we say when we say gluten friendly we mean gluten free we try to accommodate all of the different we do. Uh, dietary issues. And it's always a great morning because we always have retro cartoons and those old retro shows and people come in PJs. Yeah. and Almost three hours of retro cartoons. By the time this show goes out, that will actually have passed. But we do it three times a year. But uh, it's always nice to be able to talk a little bit about it because, well, of course, it has to do with food. Exactly. So, yes, the series is uh, is any excuse for food. Last time we had Daughters of the Dust, which is for, uh, part of your part of our Black History Month screening. Um, and this coming one is going to be Ramen Shop, which is directed by Eric Koo. And it's a Singaporean-Japanese-French film, if I'm correct. Yes, it is. And basically, um, it follows the a family um, whose mother dies, the, the, the matriarch of the family dies, who's been the actually the sole creator of a lot of the food that's uh, cooked in the ramen shop. And uh, the son goes on a journey back to Singapore and learns a little bit about the family history and it's it's a beautiful film and part of the things that I do with the An Excuse for Food series is of course we have food. Yeah. Unfortunately ramen doesn't translate well. It would be difficult to get a, a room full of people to eat ramen in a dark screen. Yeah it's a little bit messy it's great but it's 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 a little bit more challenging and so we will have sushi in order to celebrate the japanese cuisine and we have the japanese uh, association here in edmonton who've come on board and we're hoping that they will provide some entertainment and some of the cultural aspects of the japanese culture because i am japanese and i always like to have any excuse to promote a little bit of my background we're looking forward to uh, some something in June and possibly something in July and so we ask people to come and always be a little bit hungry because we'll always have some kind of food samplings and um, yeah definitely get here early and enjoy not least the food but I think this time you're also hoping to have some live music on stage am I we're hoping to have some live music we're hoping that maybe the taiko drummers will come and which would be awesome uh, in this particular theater it's always a great sound for having the drummers so yes that is is a, an often uh, underrated aspect of this uh, of this theatre is that the acoustics in this room, this 500 seat auditorium that we're sat in right now, are absolutely fantastic. 
Plus, we have this wonderful stage where we can have performers, and maybe yes. we can get some of our uh, folkloric uh, Adore dancers to come and participate. We're still working out some of those details. So, um, and the association does a lot of these things. So, anyone who has been to our association knows that we have always food and dance, and uh, always have things to sell that are part of our heritage. Um, this is also uh, this is a very nicely befitting film. It premiered as the closing film for the culinary cinema section at the Berlin International Film Festival last year. And I also learned this is not Eric Koo's first dalliance with no, food and film. Back in 95 and 97, he had uh, Me, Pock Man and 12 Stories both have a sort of narrative element that focuses on food. Either yes. the characters are, uh, I think he owns a soup shop in, uh, in 12 Stories and then it's about noodles. Yeah, in, uh, but he always, he always uh, kind of goes into the family relationships and yeah. delves a little bit more into character studies, which is really part of the whole beauty of this particular story. We've got lots of ramen films in general, and I think a lot of people remember some of those traditional films. But this is a nice character study. A little food becomes a central point at bringing the characters together, and that's one of the beauties of, of a lot of films around food. That oftentimes it becomes a secondary character, and this is one of the central characters that everybody kind of centers around. And of course, I love food, so this is always a great excuse excuse yes. for food. <laughs> Any excuse for food. As a side note, we have a lot of other things that are happening every year. One of the things that we like to do is provide um, a party for our volunteers. Okay. And this um, last year we had it in the fall and we decided that we would hold it in conjunction with this is volunteer month. So we always ask the volunteers uh, to do a poll on the movie of that they want to see and the selection this time is eighth grade eighth grade which was Bo Burnham's debut feature from last year I want to say was I, last year yes it was last yeah, year it does, does feel quite recent yeah. yeah and so I've heard rumors that uh, we might have a dessert bar that's a fantastic idea. part of this plus we'll be having um, tours of the theater we which is part of our ghost tours series here so that'll be part of our party and so I would highly suggest that uh, you come out and check out the movie and hear a little bit about some of our volunteer opportunities as well as um, maybe think about coming and helping out because without our volunteers here at the theater, we wouldn't be able to operate because we are a nonprofit and we're always looking for that kind of help. Yeah, absolutely. That's, a, that's an important point to make that quite literally every single aspect of, uh, of things that happen in terms of the events that we run here are not possible without the help of volunteers even this very podcast wouldn't be possible uh without the uh, the help and contribution of the people that are curating our series and are, are willing to come in and talk to me about it as well so it's definitely a good thing to do it has its own reward has lots of rewards yeah the you can see the movies that you're volunteering for especially if you're doing like the front of house with popcorn and things like that you can see that particular movie and then you get a double pass if you didn't see eighth grade by the way an amazing soundtrack by anna meredith uh, a lot of it is taken from her 2016 album varmints so if you're into music definitely come and it's, check it out for it's that a it lovely, is bombastic lovely amazing lovely and so if you're wanting to know when that is that is april 7th at 3 30 in the afternoon on a wonderful sunday afternoon so 
please come out and take a look at that. My ramen uh, shop, uh, any excuse for food movie, is April 13th at 7, which is a Thursday evening. All right, Hitomi. Thank you very much for coming in. That's also stressing me out. Uh, so on Thursday 18th, we have uh, But I'm a Cheerleader, which is a homicidal screening, which is fantastic. Those things are awesome, and you should attend them all. Uh, is a movie and a drag show, uh, usually at the beginning or at least uh, halfway through. So they actually used to stop the film halfway through at a really inappropriate place, uh, kind of like in the middle of uh, a turkey shoot as well. And then, you know, they just get up and start doing uh, a live drag show. Which is amazing. We should let them do that with uh, Bohemian Rhapsody to make it a little bit better. That yes. <laughs> is a great idea that I don't think anyone will go for. No, probably not. So yes, but I'm a cheerleader. It's directed by uh, Jamie Babbitt and it is from 1999. It is a satirical romantic comedy, I suppose, about the uh, a girl who is uh, sent to be corrected uh, in a kind of like Ludovico sense from her homosexuality. Uh, very kind of like garish, pink and green all over the place. It's kind of like the suburbs in Edward Scissorhands. Yes, yeah. exactly. And also a bit like John Waters mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, in a lot of ways. Sort of a Easter expressionism. <laughs> and Yeah, and starring uh, Natasha Lyonne, who I think is uh, one of our sort of uh, collective favourites here. She's uh, in Russian Doll, which has just uh, been released on Netflix recently which is amazing which Jamie Babbitt was also one of the creators on I believe oh shit I didn't realize I that. believe so yeah okay yeah um yeah I definitely re-fell in love with Natasha Leone watching Russian Doll yeah she's so sui genre genre how do you pronounce that Je- what are, sorry what oh it's uh of its own kind there's okay. nothing like her oh no there isn't and also we had the the pleasure of uh uh ho- she hosted the screening of Anti-Birth, I want to say. Uh, I think it was during a Dead First screening. Some of that information Natasha Leone was in the Metro Cinema? She was here, yeah. Whoa. Uh, and, you know, so there's a one thing that, that you kind of like will be, be stuck in your head from watching um, Russian Doll, at least, is that she has an ability to smoke without using her hands. She does that in real life, too. It's very disarming. Have you seen it in person happen? I have, yeah. Wow. Yeah. What was that? Did like? you have a smoke with her? <laughs> I tried. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't take. <laughs> she could, week after week, our, our discussions get less and less relevant. Less and less to do with anything we're showing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, a film we were showing, which uh, sadly we're not anymore, is Firecrackers. But in its stead, Joel Petroikas at the end of March and also the beginning of April. So there's a very kind of, they're very similarly. Uh, styled in they're very indie very grungy very kind of like dirty and raw lots of uh, they seem like I mean uh, uh, Firecrackers was a new film but certainly Joel Petroikas if you've seen things like Buzzard or Ape uh, which was the film he uh, the first film that sort of got him um, recognition recognition, that's the word I'm looking for so I can give a bit of context around these screenings as um, as it's um, one of the successful candidates from our guest 
programmer intake. Mm -hmm. So um, every year at Metro, we encourage people to submit ideas for programming that kind of the person takes a bit of ownership of. So if they want to screen a series of films or a particular film, they might present them at Metro. They might do a bit of um, promotion around it themselves. and. Uh, and this one was uh, presented by Lindsay Campbell, who has worked at Metro in the past. She has. She was even a projectionist for a short while as yeah, well. Yeah, and I, from what I understand, that she might have some kind of um, kind of personal connection to him. But he, he's a Michigan filmmaker. Yes, like, we're correct yeah, yeah, about that. Yeah. yeah. So you know, he kind of is one of these people who is extremely low budget, but also operating outside. Uh, like, you know, a lot of so-called indie films now are still basically, you know, coming out of. LA or New York or yeah. something and, and it's rare to find these kinds of movies that are from I guess the fringes of kind of they have their own unique culture because they're from real America the real America, real America. <laughs> uh, so he also made yeah, Ape was uh, from 2012 Buzzard which we're showing uh, is from 2014 then he made The Alchemist Cookbook in 2016 and then the other one we're showing is Relaxer which is his latest one from last year don't follow the link to his website from the Wikipedia page because it appears to take you to some sort of Japanese gambling site. Um, and I checked it out, and that's repeatedly the link that's used. I think that's on purpose to annoy people. Uh, so, well done. That worked. Yeah, it's so the third, third film to star Joshua Burge, who uh, possesses a kind of like uh, a wonderfully palpable, uneasy presence, um, much like you might find in the work of uh, some of Patricus's influences, which are people like Michael Haneke, and Kelly Reichard, who did a lot of like long takes on people where you just get to watch someone's face reacting to something that often you don't even see. Uh, and I feel like there's also similarities with the likes of Andrew Brzezowski, definitely comparison between something like that and computer chess. Um, but if you compare computer chess to uh, support the girls, there's still a kind of like a very loose feel to it, but it feels a lot more polished, mm -hmm. you know, whereas a film like computer chess has still got that very kind of, it feels like it almost has no direction. Yeah. But that's not the and case almost at all. no budget. Yes, definitely no budget. I mean, I, I'm, I, was, I was a huge fan of computer chess. I thought it was fantastic. Introduced me to the world of Collie Ryan, who is a wonderful composer. Who uh, she performs the song at the end of the film, and her music just sort of like turns up throughout it as well. It's just very weird, uh, kind of a bit like Karen Dalton uh, folk music, mm -hmm. but uh, just sounds oddly sort of discordant. Uh, very in keeping with the style and themes of, uh, of all of those kind of films as well. Uh, so yeah, come and see that. Uh, those films are going to be presented by Lindsay. It actually starts at the end of March. And we're screening Buzzard at 7 o'clock on the 26th. And then Relaxer is going to be uh, on the 30th, which is a Saturday. And then in April... Uh, it's going to be on the third. So yeah, definitely come and check those out because uh, those are films that probably don't get a lot of uh, screen time. I think that's a good segue though for the uh, 30th anniversary screening of Roadkill that we're doing as well. Yes. Part of National Canadian Film Day, which happens every year. I think this is the fourth or fifth time that, that this this day has kind of rolled around where there's a lot of incentives for theaters across Canada to screen Canadian films. We, we had Bruce McDonald, the director, come to Metro as part of FavaFest a few years ago. And, uh, you know, he's been making kind of, I mean, he's most well known for Hardcore Logo. He's made a, a couple of much bigger films. He's directed a lot of television, but he's someone who's kind of always been working from this 
kind of grassroots indie, low budget place and um, just watching their trailer from Roadkill. Joey Ramone's in it and mm -hmm. it's got yeah. this very raw punk, kind of like a bunch of people just getting together and making a movie kind of yeah. energy that I quite like, so. Yeah, all of the films that we've just talked about, I guess kind of have that feeling of uh, that spark of excitement about people just doing something just for the hell of it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and not being established. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so uh, National Canadian Film Day, mm -hmm. that is uh, April 17th as well. On that day, we're showing uh, Flynn Flon Hockey Town, which is uh, part of the Northwest Fest uh, Dock of the Month Club. Uh, so come and see that as well. Back in January, we had an event that was curated by Scott MacArthur. It was called Direct Play, yep. as the series. And uh, we showed Scott Pilgrim and uh, Edge, Edge of Tomorrow. Tomorrow. That was what yep. it was. Yeah, it was not, well, not strictly a computer game film. Oh, it's weird. Uh, Edge of Tomorrow. But very much like one in that you get repeated opportunities to live the same Yeah, I refer to it as Call of Duty, yeah. where you, you die right, and come yeah. back like until you get good. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> on, uh, on April the... 10th we've got the design and game awards uh so do you want to tell people what that actually is direct play just started uh we're, we're growing and growing what we're about is trying to celebrate gaming in all forms media with metro um eventually we got to the point where why doesn't alberta have an awards for the game industry largest entertainment industry in the world um we also have um 102 video game studios in Alberta. That was the last count um, where that's uh, like two men group in their ba uh, basement to um, Bioware, which is huge, Beamdog, uh, Simulacrum, all of them are along the way. And I went, let's celebrate these people. But let's not just celebrate video games, let's celebrate gaming. Game of the Year is a mixed award between board games, video games, RPGs, and um, social games. We went ahead and found um, five judges throughout Alberta. And so I'm not choosing them, I'm just running it. And uh, they chose some nominees. Fan voting went up, which actually just closed uh, Wednesday, March 6th. And so um, we're gonna tally those up and then they'll be announced live here on stage at the Metro. So in terms of what people might have actually heard of that's going to be part of this, is there a, have you got a short list of, of, uh, of things that people will be familiar with? Um, if you're if you're familiar with the gaming industry, a lot of these names shouldn't shock you. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we are honoring. We'll start with um, uh, nine of the awards were fan voted, okay. but four of them were um, honoring awards where um, where I had a hand in it. The other nine I didn't. We we had the judges pick. So outstanding studio, which is like a lifetime achievement award, we're going to give to Bioware. Okay. Um, it's hard to argue that, I think. Uh, they've changed gaming the world over, let alone Alberta, let alone Edmonton. Um, so that one was an easy pick and um, well-deserved. Mm -hmm. um, and then Outstanding Individual, uh, we're going to give to Aaron Flynn, uh, who's, who actually ran Bioware for a, a quite a long time, worked on a bunch of great games, and now is over at Improbable. We now have a, a digital tax credit for gaming in Alberta, and he was one of the ones that helped uh, push that along. And I think that's that's helped the gaming industry grow. Mm -hmm. And um, 2018 was such a fantastic year uh, for um, for gaming, and that was uh, was one of the reasons why. Um, so we we are going to give uh, one of those to him. Studio of the year, uh, Roxley Game Laboratory. They're out of Calgary. They're a board game 
uh, guys who made um, Brass and Dice Throne and Super Motherload, and they're just fantastic. I, I got to meet them last year, um, several times actually, mm -hmm. and the nicest people who just have this passion and they've released um, actually two out of the three games off our game of the year is actually theirs. So it'll be interesting to see which one wins. And then person of the year we're going to give to um, Kelly Froze of Edmonton Nerdlist. The stuff that man does is just, he's everywhere. Okay. And um, he, uh, he fosters not only gaming but nerd in general. Just a fantastic man. If you ever get a chance to just shake his hand and say hello, worth every second. This is insane. Like it's been, the response has been really, really crazy. And we got some fantastic people, community members of the year, uh, Melissa Davison, who's an, uh, one of the head artists, I, I believe, artists nonetheless at Bioware. Mm. Um, she runs a, a women's gaming group called Yake Femdev, mm -hmm. who um, they get together and just try to help each other in the industry. Rebecca uh, from Edmonton Twitch, she uh, took over Edmonton Twitch um, last year and just been really pushing forward about um, streaming and gaming and great passion awesome person uh, and then we have Vanessa from uh, McEwen she runs a McEwen game club and she's been just doing an amazing amount of work so. well I think it's gonna be uh, it sounds like it's gonna be quite a quite a popular event and I think gaming as well is something which is I mean it's not just uh, you know exclusive to Edmonton but it is there is a, f a fairly strong community of gamers here at Edmonton with things like extra life that are always extremely well attended and uh, has a lot of support from people. And there's a lot of charity that's uh, associated with it as well. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a good thing. Extra Life, um, I'm pretty sure the number is 1.2 million. Is wow. what they've raised so far for Story. So that is going to be Wednesday the 10th at 7 o'clock. Yeah, 7 to 9. Get here early. I imagine there'll be some festivities. We're slowly announcing that stuff as we get closer to the day. Yeah. I know afterwards we're going to go over to Beercade. Actually, they're going to give us the space to... Um, that makes sense. ...to um, celebrate, uh, give us a bunch of tokens to play games and just be jolly and, yeah. and have fun. Oh, it's a public event. Don't feel like you're excluded if you don't know anything about games. It's a, it's a broad spectrum of gaming, so it's not just video games. It's board games and... RPGs any other kind of games and social uh, games exactly and it's also a good uh, you know a good a good thing to come meet people out as well so well and especially because of like we we have some fantastic people coming down and they're it's it's funny they say never meet your heroes but i've met a bunch of these people and they continually um uh delight it's it's been it's been fantastic awesome um so yeah uh tickets are available on the website uh designinggameawards.com so, Go and there. All, more info there too. Yeah. 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 Also, metrocinema.org. I'm pretty sure we'll probably have something. Oh, I think Dan's working on it right now. Oh, is he? Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, Scott, thank you very much for coming to talk to me. Thank you very much, Owen. Always a pleasure. Hope to do this uh, again soon. Definitely. Yeah. Also, on March 24th, we've got uh, a newly added event just today, in fact. Uh, we're showing Docking, which is a film by Trev Anderson. You know this guy, Heather? Yeah, I do. 
Trevor's a friend of mine, a former coworker, a excellent filmmaker from Edmonton. Do you guys, do you guys know the term docking? <laughs> I don't, <laughs> but the picture, <laughs> um, the picture suggests something. Yes, it's two hot dogs. Yes, touching tips. Well, the, and this is the PG poster for the film. Right. There is an alternate poster. It's you have uh, to use your imagination. A bit, yeah, right? uh, you can look up docking. It is a sexual act from a home computer. Not yeah, a yeah work not at work. Yes, yeah, not at work. Not okay. safe for work and. This is, I guess I think it's fair to say this movie is Dicks in Space. Yep. And it's also being expanded into a feature film. So come come see the short so, so that you can get excited for the feature. It's also being played with a bunch of short films that seem maybe thematically relevant to it. Science Friction, I believe, is how Science this Science Friction, um, that's what we're calling it. Which is being rendered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I guess, uh, you know, you have to, to turn up on the night to see how Trevor kind of like frames that. But uh, the other films that we're showing is a bunch, a bunch of shorts. We've got uh, A Trip to the Moon, uh, Extraterrestrials Gone Wild, the Tesla World Lights, which I have not seen in the brain. Oh, it's time. that's really cool. Also, I know the filmmaker. And, uh, <laughs> why don't you just know everybody? Subtle blitz. <laughs> and uh, a film called Chichi as well. Yeah. Um, also, I guess just uh, one thing that I think is notable about docking is that Todd Chernyowski, who is from Edmonton, based out of Hollywood now, uh, he, ooh, I don't know exactly the position he filled, maybe production design on this project, but he has worked on the likes of Avatar, Star Wars, like the new Star Wars movies. He's he's pretty big, big deal. So the production on this it's a, only a four-minute film. It's it's out of this world. And then, yeah, uh, I'll just say Tesla World Light is a really great experimental film that kind of combines scratch animation with kind of more conventional filmmaking. Um, and it's it's a kind of a little parable about uh, Tesla, I guess. Is the way to describe it. Awesome. All right. Well, yeah, come and see that. And uh, that's uh, going to be uh, a very new thing to me as well. So, yes, docking. And other tales of love and lunacy. That'll be on March 24th, starting at 3.30. So, yes, go to metrocinema.org and find out more about that. Okay, I'm sat here with Maggie Hardy, who is the curator of Silent Sunnies, which is a new curatorial that started in January with uh, a couple of Buster Keaton films. This time, we're going to show um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which is the, the 1916 version. Yes. With an additional score mm-hmm. done by you. Correct. Excellent. And is it going to be performed live by you? Uh, it will be performed pseudo live pseudo live so i'll have uh most of the score like pre-written and pre-recorded it's like a multi-part digital synth score um but then i'll be doing some like live improvisation over top of it uh as well as some mixing probably with my uh, Monotron space delay. Okay, so it's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea from 1916. Why Why did you choose this film in particular? There's a few interesting things about this film. Yeah, uh, yeah I picked it uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, namely, it's one of the first really big technical spectacles, in a sense, uh, especially as far as science fiction would go. Mm-hmm. Um and hard science fiction at that. I mean, uh, most of it was within the realm of possibility, though granted a lot of that's 
possibility as things we're only fully experiencing now. Yeah. Um, it's also really interesting because of the underwater photography uh, by the Williamson brothers. And they, uh, they did... S- they pretty much pioneered underwater photography. Am I right in saying that's the first motion picture to be filmed underwater? Uh, it's the first major First motion. major motion picture, yeah. They did a sort of uh, proof of concept uh, prior in 1914 called 30,000 Leagues beneath the sea and it's just one of the brothers beating up a shark okay. uh, <laughs> it's like five minutes and you know it's it is what it is but it, it's certainly not a, a film in the sense that most people would think of a motion picture right right uh, so based on the uh, the Jules Verne classic and also incorporates elements from Jules Verne's The Mysterious Island as well yes it's actually interesting in a sense too because the Williamsons would also uh, use their underwater photography in the 1929 version of the Mysterious Island. Okay. Um, so, and they actually named the the submarine, well, the pseudo submarine that they shot everything in, um, the Jules Verne. So <laughs> clearly, they were quite yeah. indebted to the man and his ideas. Um, but it it pretty much starts off straight 20,000 leagues. You know, you've got your mysterious Captain Nemo. He's, going underneath the water and they end up at a mysterious island mm-hmm. and then it kind of there's still a lot of um, the major plot points that would be in the later Disney 20,000 Leagues like there there is an octopus fight it's yeah. great yeah it's really lush and like you can strongly strongly see how indebted Disney was to this particular mm-hmm. filmed version insofar as technique goes a revelation The design element of it seems quite far ahead of its time in in terms of the the degree of detail and the animatronic nature of it. It just feels kind of absurdly real in a way. Honestly, the next best film I could say for for having underwater animatronics as vivid in a sense would be Jaws. Yeah, <laughs> and you know that was decades, decades, decades down the line. Yeah, uh, I mean this was two thousand. This is uh, I was going to say two thousand sixteen. This was nineteen sixteen. So this is this is incredibly early. Yeah, a hundred and three years old. That's, this year, which it's not often that we get to show films that we can say are over a hundred years old. No, actually. Uh, and I mean because so so many silent films have been lost. It's rare to even have the chance to say that, let alone show them. Yeah, exactly. Is this a film that exists in the public domain? It is a public domain film. Anything prior to 1923 is wholly in the public domain, and most things prior to 1927 are in the public domain. So Sunday, April the 7th at 1 o'clock, partly live, partly pre-recorded musical accompaniment from you as well. The one thing that I would like to add is uh, to keep your eyes peeled for an appearance by Noble Johnson uh, in it. He was a really interesting actor, uh, was good friends with Lon Chaney. They went to school together as children. And he was actually the uh, first African-American actor to start his own all-black uh, film studio. Oscar Micheaux would later start start one. Um, 
and Noble Johnsons didn't run for that long, but he, he was really one of those interesting actors who had just the right skin tone in black and white to play anyone. And he did. He played Spaniards, he played black people, he was the king of the tribesmen in King Kong, uh, and, you know, he acted from, like, pretty much the dawn of cinema in, like, 1906 all the way until 1950s. Wow. And, uh, yeah, just wild. So I'm going to remind everybody again, April 7th at 1 o'clock, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, part of Maggie Hardy's Silent Sundays, which was a, a good time last time. Yeah, I was... a good turnout. It was a great turnout. Uh, the audience really seemed to like it, and I was glad to have, you know... The, Seeing little kids in a movie, you know, older than their grandparents, it's, yeah. it's nice, it's fun. Yeah. Uh, all right, Maggie, thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. We're also going to be showing The Favourite which is the latest film from Yorgos Lanthimos. And uh, I know that's actually the only film that we're talking about this time that we've all seen. Yeah, mm-hmm. indeed. And uh, I think it's... Are we all fans of it? I'm yeah. looking at yeah. you, Will. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not the biggest Yorgos fan. No. One of our colleagues, Nick, is a big Yorgos fan, and I once compared Yorgos to Wes Anderson. In no. so far, no, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. In so far as they have very distinct styles, and you know when you're going into one of his films what you're going to get out of it. That's like comparing as John Waters. <laughs> it's a beautiful film. I, I, I was uh, a much bigger fan of uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer than I was of uh, um, The Lobster. Me too. That's yeah. like I think his strongest film for me, and the favorite is up there as well. Yeah. Dogtooth? You guys like Dogtooth? Oh, yeah. Dogtooth. I actually haven't seen Dogtooth. Oh, see, Dogtooth was how I discovered him, and I loved it. And then I didn't actually see The Lobster, and I think Killing of Sacred Deer was a little bit disappointing for me. Really? Whereas The Favourite, I I quite enjoyed this. I found, you know, it's a lot more fun than his other movies. Definitely. And it was refreshing. I wasn't, (laughs) when going in, I wasn't expecting to have as much fun as I did. I think the way he, like, he said in an interview that he doesn't tell his actors to act the way they do, but his actors definitely act in a very stark and strange way that gets, like, strangely exhausting to watch. See, that's the thing. I found that uh, that's that was um, very evident in um, in The Lobster and Killing of a Sacred Deer. They seem far more natural in The Favourite. Yeah, The Favourite is the most, like... They're, they're a lot more charismatic. Yeah, a lot Plus, more. Plus, I mean, yeah, you, when you have... Uh, I mean, Olivia Colman is absolutely amazing in it. And I think, yeah, Yorgos was saying, she was the only person that he had in mind for that role. Her yeah. Oscar speech was also really hilarious. It was, like, its own It show. was, actually, wasn't it? Yeah. I think that everyone fell in love with her. Like, yeah. people who had never heard of her were just completely smitten. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. I know that some people see the favorite as being very cruel, and I think that that's also something that kind of a response that people have to Yorgos Lanthimos in general. And I see that, but I also I found that there was a, quite a bit of uh, emotional depth in the favorite, that even though there's a lot of characters acting cruelly to each other, I always... Um, understood their motivations and believed them to be kind of fully dynamic people and that's how ultimately it went beyond being 
kind of a fun, uh, edgy period piece to being something that actually uh, resonated with me. Mm-hmm. When I would say the cruelty in it, I don't think that it actually leads to anybody gaining anything. I think there are more consequences towards the cruelty that maybe some of the characters, specifically Emma Stone's character, doesn't expect. Mm-hmm. Um, there is actually, and that, that's a weird point that you expect there to be some very, very harsh consequences for the for the way that they conduct themselves. It's you know set around. Uh, so there's a sort of a love triangle, which uh, may or may not have uh, have some roots in historical actuality. Probably not. I believe that they are. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's my take on it. Okay. We can <laughs> Having read like sure. a Wikipedia article. <laughs> yeah. It seems like a documentary, so <laughs> let's just go with that. <laughs> the rabbits weren't real. The rabbits uh, are a fabrication. The rabbits are a, a, a made-up part of the story. That makes no sense. That well, actually, like the most realistic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the character played by Olivia Coleman, uh, Queen Anne, is supposedly uh, to have kept a rabbit for each of her seventeen deceased children. That is not true. <laughs> Although she did have 17 deceased children. Although she did have 17 deceased children, yes. Well, as someone who avoids period pieces at all costs just because they're the typical conventions really bore me to death, this film was amazing and I loved everything about it. And he really pushes pushes the, the boundaries of the period piece and also just with the techniques of cinematography. There's a lot of almost it almost feels experimental the, the wide shots the fisheye lens yeah that's one of the most striking things that you when you first are watching it that's the, i think one of the first shots even is this like weird fisheye shot and you just immediately just the image doesn't make sense you have this like wonderfully kind of like ornate decorative beautiful architecture with like very very um very um you know sort of fastidious detail in all of it and it's such a sort of dense image to look at it's like looking at the uh, the final shot of a tarkovsky film or something it's so carefully composed but it's almost like he's deliberately ruined it by pl- placing it in this sort of this weird lens, and uh, that's kind of like the the relationship you have with the whole film. You're constantly like toing and froing with it, and I like that feeling. That, that and the way know. it's often moving, it's like a surveillance camera. So it's not only the, this weirdly yeah. wide shot; it's just this pan that feels like you're you're a voyeur on all of this, and it's very different for this this era yeah. that he's representing. So. Um, I think also the way that the gender roles are reversed in the film, it's very apparent. Like you have these three female characters at the center who kind of exert all of the power and control in the film. And then you have these peripheral mm, male characters who are sometimes like tr- they're trying to edge themselves in, but they really are, they're super ineffectual. And also even just the way they're all done up in the powdered wigs and consumed with their looks and the women are less so I mean it seems when you say it all like that it seems so kind of artificially put in as this feminist statement but it doesn't feel that way in the movie it feels completely um, justified by the the story that's being told and one of those powdered men is Nicholas Hoult who I didn't even recognize (laughs) until about, you know, three quarters of the way through. The great thing about the script is that the characters kind of start off as fully formed people rather than being an origin story. They, I hate origin stories, so that might just be my personal bias, but the stories where you're just kind of dropped in the middle of the action and you don't need to see why people are acting the way you are, you just get that from the context of the way that people treat one another or context of the story is always going to make a better film than you know 
being bit by a radioactive spider and watching all that. Speaking of uh, radioactive spiders, I think we're playing Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, we are. Totally showing that. That's part of our... Yes, that's that's a new release. People love this movie. They really do, yeah. I've heard it's great. I think it's like a comic book movie, maybe the only one that's like true to comic book stylings with like the kind of onomatopoeia, like speech bubble-esque things. And so it's like, it's more true to what comic book people like about comic books okay. I think it's also um, I know a little bit yeah. because it's the Miles Morales Spider-Man and not the Peter Parker one it's uh, you know it runs the gamut of all the different universes of uh, Spider-Man Spider-Man <laughs> uh, Spider-Man <laughs> uh, that have existed um, Spider-People so, thank you you know Spider- so you, you get all of the the representation that you get when uh, from having the different people, I guess, be allowed now in comic books to be superheroes, to be Spider-Man. So that's mm. one of the redeeming qualities of this one. Okay, so we're showing that on the 19th as well, the same uh, night as the Cat Video Fest. Great back um, to So back. since you're going to be in the building anyway... <laughs> Returning in April is another Garno Ghostlight tour hosted by Dave Clark, but more importantly, he's here to talk about his new series that he's curating. It's called Band in Alberta, which is an enticing and delicious name. And it starts off with uh, a title called Tom Jones. Tom Jones. Which not is not about... It's not unusual. She's a lady, Tom Jones. No, this is a, a movie based on Henry Fielding's Tom Jones from the 18th century. You may have studied it in high school. It was a, a multiple Oscar winner in 63. Yeah. So why was it banned in Alberta? <laughs> like, what's the big deal here? That particular film? Yeah. Ludity. Lude. Okay. Rude. Sauciness. Naughtiness. Naughty. Oh, Too naughty. Now, bear in mind, this is a big color commercial film based on the first novel in English literature from the 17th century. Also starring the uh, recently deceased uh, Albert Finney. Yeah, and uh, Susan, Susanna York. Okay. It's got quite, uh, if you're into British movies from the 60s and 70s, there's a lot of uh, British character actors in there. Hugh Griffiths is in there, Welsh actor. Okay. You might recognize. And it's directed by... Tony Richardson. Tony Richardson, yeah. Natasha Richardson's dad, Jolie Richardson's dad. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, so there's a big family tree coming down. Yeah. I think one of his last films was Blue Skies with Jessica Lange, which is a beautiful film. With, uh, with uh, Tommy Lee Jones as beautiful well, I think. Film. Yeah. Yeah. And went in front of the Alberta Film Censor, 1st of January, 1964, and he kind of banned it without watching it. Which strikes me that perhaps he just didn't like Tom Jones. (laughs) Thought that it was a film about Tom Jones. Yeah, he may have done. He may have got confused by the title. Just to wind back a bit. So Canada in the early 50s had more film censors than any other country in the... any other democratic country in the world. This is a byproduct of confederation. Each province got its own film censor board at that point. And the rules governing censorship weren't under the Criminal Code of Canada, like most laws are. These are became provincial rules, and each province had complete discretion without any accountability or transparency to do kind of what they wanted. 
some of the films that have been banned just in Canada, I mean, you could get away with putting together a fascinating season uh, with uh, stuff like uh, The Wild One we've got here, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, yeah. uh, Pink Flamingos, Clockwork Orange. I mean, those are kind of, uh, you know, more more standard, but also yeah. um, uh, Heavy Traffic, which was an interesting one that was banned in Alberta. Is that yeah. one that you're hoping to get Caligula as well? Um, but Heavy Traffic's the really, Ralph Bakshi. Yeah, I really want to mix it up. Because first of all, yeah, you've got films like Little Caesar as well, yeah. 1931, you know, where which is a crime film. Alberta's got these specific things. For example, film censorship boards founded in 1913. The biggest complaints for the first decade, depictions of US patriotism. <laughs> stuff that Alberta started banning and prohibiting, uh, they didn't just prohibit um, films, public exhibition films like in cinemas, they quietly decided to uh, censor every single film that was shown in Alberta. This includes industrial training films, educational films, films built in by churches, they started adding reading in or adding memos to the Alberta Entertain uh, Amusement Act talking about uh, propaganda mm. and saying that if a film is deemed propagandistic, this distributor has to shoot an intro and add a card that says this is propagandistic, which basically prevented the film being shown. <laughs> Famous players who were basically rent leased this the Garneau Theatre at that point had a private showing in this cinema of Tom Jones. There's three accounts of it. They're all a bit divergent, but the things we do know, and we'll talk more about this on the actual night, so if you want to get in deep on this one, uh, famous players really wanted this film to play here. Would make a money. The manager of the theatre, Bill Wilson here, who built the theatre back in 1940, he wanted at the show, because he's like, this will do great, it's studied in schools, people won't want to read the book, they'll just come and see it. Yeah. Albert Finney's a bit of a star at that point, becoming a bit of a star. Uh, so it was the first day of the sitting of the ledge, and then they invited all the social credit government and their wives and families and the members of the opposition to come and watch the film here. The manager of the cinema, uh, Bill, was usually very gregarious, but hid upstairs because it was his bread and butter. He, you know, you're still not allowed to go to a, a bars on open on Sundays, right? Mm. Uh, the Alberta Amusements Act bans the selling of ice cream on Sundays. Yes, I know. <laughs> Look it up. The Alberta Amusements Act. It's still in force. That's it not has been very, uh, yeah, not, not very amusing at all. For the context, right? Yeah. So his livelihood depends on this theatre keeping a, a license. So he's staying out of it. Uh, they start the film, the, one of the reports from the opposition member from Calgary at that point, who's brought his kids, by the way, his, his teenage kids, uh, is that everyone sitting there looks ready to leave. Like they've, some of them haven't taken their coats off mm. and they're kind of all waiting for the first person to walk out. And that happens like even before anything lewd happens, like less than 20 minutes in the film. Yeah. Someone uh, humped and hurrahed and, and shouted, this is disgusting, and left, and that sort of precipitated pretty much everyone walking out, even before the particularly saucy scene. Yeah. 
So, uh, and I think that, and then by reports, Bill came downstairs, said, are they gone? They said, they said yeah, and the, the opposition member and his kids were still there. He said, well, let's roll it back to the beginning. I've been looking forward to seeing this. And they sat and watched it on their own. Fantastic. Yeah. So come and see it with me and we'll talk about this and then we'll watch it together and we'll see if it should be banned still. <laughs> we'll, 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 do a, we'll do a poll. Um, so that's going to be on, uh, on Saturday the 13th of April. Yeah, that's 9.30. At, uh, oh, I've got 9.15 here. Oh, it could you be. know what? It's one of those two times. But it is yeah. on the 13th. Yeah, that's um, so, uh, so coming to that, Band in Alberta, the first uh, first film in the series will be Tom Jones, curated by this guy right here, Dave Clark, and uh, he's going to give you a um, you know a bit more of the context about it when uh, when you come here, and it is a, a sort of a deeply fascinating subject and a very interesting and nicely specific uh, series to for us to be hosting. Also on the 21st. Uh, make sure you come to the uh, Garno Ghostlight Tour if you have not been, or if you have been and you just want to come again. Get to listen to Dave talk about the uh, history of the building. Yeah. Get to watch me show you the first reel of a 35mm film. What's 35mm? Well, Dave, <laughs> I'd love to tell you, but come to the Ghostlight Tour and find out more. What's film? <laughs> uh, anyway, thank you very much for coming in, Dave. Oh, my pleasure. Thank So some of the other things we're showing that we haven't had time to go into in uh, full detail. We've got Apollo 11, which is uh, just uh, starts on the 1st, because it was all a big joke, of course. I went to see it at the IMAX. It was amazing. Definitely come and see it. I know that, well, some of the, it's hard to believe that the, some of the footage is even real. It's all 70 mil. I can't believe that uh, it hasn't surfaced until now. It's just absolutely breathtaking. If you have an interest in space and uh, space documentaries and the like, Definitely come and see it. It's made up of uh, like a series of kind of split screen shots of uh, cameras placed on parts of the Apollo 11 module coming together and then uh, breaking apart a lot, uh, on the on the you know trip to the moon. And it, it's just it's just amazing. Uh, and the very uh, very next day we got on the Sly in search of the family stone, which is about Sly uh, Sly Stone, not Sly Stallone, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, and his kind of like. Uh, where he's uh, where he's disappeared to in the last few years. He's uh, an amazing character to watch. Definitely go and look at interviews with him. He's like a surprisingly kind of acerbic. It seems like no one really fully understood him in, in, in an interview situation. Thursday the 11th, we've also got Vera Drake, which is part of Michael Jans' Real Revolution series, which has uh, thus far been uh, pretty amazing. We had uh, Malcolm X and Gandhi. And, uh, and this is the next one in that series. And <laughs> lots more. <laughs> and lots more. Speaking of Malcolm X and Spike Lee, do the right thing. Yes. Still showing that, right? Yes, yes, we are still showing that. Spike Lee just won his first Oscar, so amazing. Come see his actual best movie that probably yeah. deserves an Oscar. It, it seems Definitely. that's part of, uh, of Ramnik Dung's Boom Bap series, uh, which has also been amazing so far. So definitely come watch that. Do the right thing. That's on the uh, the 18th. And loads of other stuff. Go to metrocinema.org to uh, find out more details. Thank you very much again to uh, Mark Templeton, uh, Matthew Belton from uh, Mangled Tapes, Maggie Hardy, myself, Leonard J. Paul for providing uh, all of the music which you've been hearing throughout the show. Wouldn't really be possible without you guys who donate it all for free, which is, uh, which is amazing. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks. And thanks for listening. And we'll see you in the lobby.